Three, two, one. Welcome back, my beloved. So I was reminded how back in college, I used to have a professor who every time that we would walk into the room, he was this big, gruff guy, and he loved all of us as students, but he had this deep double baritone voice and just be like, my beloved. It was always so good. But I was encouraged to come up with a nickname for all of you, and I have no idea what to say other than my beloved Ahuva, as it is in Hebrew. I don't have a title for this one. And you know what? It may change by the end of all of this. We'll see what happens. But this one is going to be about one of the most overtly theological things yet. It's really just on the love of God. And in order to tell you and to map out this episode before we get started, let me tell you, I'm going to start with a story, and then I'm going to share some quotes, and then I'm going to share five words, and then wrap it around and how it relates to all of us. And uh, so that's the architecture of this one. And I have a feeling that this one might be a little longer than all the other ones. So I have a drink here and I'm ready to buckle in. Usually these episodes end up being about like 28 minutes, but we'll see what happens with this one because I also don't want to rush this content. And I also want to make a disclaimer, whether or not you consider yourself uh, a church-going or religious person or even identify as a person of faith, that's fine. It doesn't bother me whether or not you think you fall in those lines comfortably or not. Honestly, I don't care because surprisingly, I do think God is even larger than our constructs of how we even define, oh man, Christianity. I think God is even more beautiful than our little denominations <laughs> uh, try to describe him through or with or in or by. Anyways, let me grab a drink. Hold on. So I need to tell you about how a number of years ago, I was asked to give a sermon on a Wednesday night. And that was a, an enormous privilege. I was super excited about it. However, this sermon made me. And when I say that it made me, it's because this sermon made me start questioning everything. So in the process of coming up with the content for that sermon years ago, I think it helped to put me on a path. And it's because when, I, when it was all said and done, the person who hired me to come and give a sermon on a Wednesday night lumbered over to me and then said, I think it would be best if you never preach here again. <laughs> uh, because someone thought I gave a bad sermon. I, I was really kind of taken aback. But because I was told that I gave a bad sermon, I had to go and study sermons. And for that reason, I, I think sermons are incredible means of communication. They can be 
riveting and fascinating and so much. Um, and so for this episode, I'm going to give it to you. Um, the sermon that I gave years ago. <laughs> yeah, the one that essentially got me fired. I'm going to give you that sermon right now. I still have some of the notes, but I'm, I've developed it way further and gone even further. So instead of dissuading me, being told I should never preach there again has only made me solidify further into it. And uh, the only difference is that now I know there were many before me in church history that said the same thing as I did that night. And uh, the topic, as I've mentioned before, it was on the love of God. And apparently I talked about the love of God in such a way that this person, it rubbed them the wrong way. It just did not jive with their understanding of God or the divine or however you want to come to define God, the the thing of that which nothing greater can be conceived. Um so if you're ready, here we go. Uh, oh, side note. I got to make a side note. So the whole time that I've been studying sermons and trying to listen to them and try to pick apart what makes for a good or bad one, uh, there's a good guiding question that's always kept me guessing. And it's what genre of talk is a sermon supposed to be? So if you're from church culture, I mean, in the middle of a service, there's usually a time set apart for the pastor who's apparently studied the topic to stand up in front and deliver an oratory to give a lecture. But that's just it. What genre of talk is a sermon? Is it supposed to be a lecture? Is it supposed to be education or exhortation? Is it a pep talk? Is it a comedy routine, like partially some people really like a sermon that's comical. Is it exposition? Is it part philosophy? Or is it part rebuke? Is it a prophetic call? Is it a recovery meeting? I mean, there's so many things that go into a sermon. And guess what? It's not any one of those things. It's all of them. And for that reason, sermons are dynamic and I... In some form or fashion, I have devoted my life to the art of the sermon. I'm not amazing, but I'm trying. Anyways, back to the thing. The sermon that I gave, the opening line and the closing line was this. Yes, fear may be a quick motivator but love is a longer lasting one. And you could pretty much summarize, the whole sermon was just me talking about that single sentence. And that's why I chose to start and finish that sermon on a Wednesday night in the middle of the summer, many, many years ago. I started and finished with that sentence. And it's in part because I had just finished hearing a sermon where the fear was used as the main motivator to try to get people to come to God. And I was reacting to that, obviously. But apparently, I may be 
talked about the love of God rather than the fear of God so much that, like I said, someone came up to me and said, I think it'd be best if you just never preach here again. I have a, I have an allergic reaction when I start to hear somebody talk about God, the divine, the thing of that which greater can be, the thing of that which nothing greater can be conceived, the ground of all being, ultimate reality, however you want to define God in all of those senses. Whenever someone starts to talk about God in such a way that fear is the major motivator, it tears me up. And I'm like, nope, can't do this. Can't. I'm already, nope. Nope. Because fear might be a quick motivator, but love is a longer lasting one. So for this, I, as I mentioned before, I have a number of quotes about the love of God, which I'm going to run through, and then five words that describe the love of God, and then I'm going to wrap it back around to all of us. So thank you for listening. If you're still into this, you are a rock star. If you're walking or driving or riding the bike or at the gym, just want to say, side note, I appreciate it. Thank you. First off, <laughs> comes from this crazy punk band uh, called Showbread. They've already broken up, but they did spastic, crazy stuff. And then one song called The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. Their final lines are, in all the tangles of who I am, the truth is that you love me. Just as I was, just as I am, just as I will be, in all the tangles of who I am, the truth is that you love me. So that, I'm going to explain each quote. That one stands out to me because I just like the word tangles. That's it. And all the tangles of who I am and who you might be, the truth is that the divine is completely enraptured with us and loves us for who we used to be, loves us for who we are now, and loves us for who we will be tomorrow. There's a constancy there. I love that. Showbread. Second, comes from this guy named Brennan Manning, who was a failed Franciscan priest. Maybe you shouldn't say failed. I mean, he left the priesthood in order to get married, but then his alcoholism destroyed the marriage that he left the priesthood for. And so out of the depths of all of that crumbling apart career and then the marriage that he left the career for, he says this, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. Because frankly, none of us will ever be as we should be. A number of years ago, I wrote a song on the guitar. It's in the key of C. <laughs> and this is the chorus. That thank God, God loves us as we are and not as we should be. Because frankly, none of us will ever be as we should be. And what's lovely about that quote is that it does away with the should. Because a lot of us carry baggage that says, 
I can't be loved by God, the divine, the thing of that which nothing greater can be conceived. I can't be loved because I am not what I should be. And this quote reminds us, it don't matter. That's all. Next quote comes from Mr. Rogers. So a number of months ago, that fantastic documentary came out came out called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it's a documentary about the life and the work of Mr. Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, who, as you may or may not know, he was a Presbyterian pastor, and he was ordained, get this, to the to the job of being a children's daytime show host. That was his church. That was his congregation, children. And there's this beautiful line in there where he says that he considers the space between the TV screen and the face of the child. That space is sacred space. And so he always wanted to communicate well, and he wanted to communicate good things from the space between the TV screen and then the face of the child. And uh, he would probably say some really um, interesting critiques of what TV has become today. But he said at one of his final commencement speeches uh, towards the end of his life, you don't have to do anything sensational in order to be loved. And the reason I love that is because when I heard it, I shed a tear in the middle of the movie theater. <laughs> I was there with two other friends. But man, that quote got to me. Because a lot of us carry this idea that we cannot be loved until we do something impressive with ourselves or with our lives or with our careers. or. And then here comes the delightful and sincere, as always, Mr. Rogers saying, you don't have to do anything in sensational. You don't have to do anything sensational in order to be loved. Man, doesn't that just relax your shoulders? Doesn't that just calm you even just saying that? So in some sense, there is no one that you or I or anyone else need to impress. So just stop trying because you don't have to do anything sensational in order to be loved. Uh, next up comes from this ancient, ancient uh, book. This I think it goes back to like the 1300s. And uh, we think it might be the first publication in English, uh, possibly by a woman. Because this book was left anonymous. And back in the day, at least in the 1300s, if it was anonymous, it's likely because it was written by a female and rather than having this text destroyed, they just went anonymously. It says something about their day and age. But it's called The Cloud of Unknowing, and it's this mystical piece of literature and poetry. But in there it talks about this. Yes, learning is a way of knowing, but so is loving. That you can study a topic through and through and through and through and through, 
there's a different kind of loving when you love the topic. That makes sense. Let's let's uh, let's uh, transition over and and talk about it like this. You can study your spouse for a hundred years, but that's one kind of knowing. But then to love your spouse, that does something else. Does it make sense? And so, yes. Loving God is a a great thing, but there's a kind of knowledge that comes from loving God and being loved by God that can't be achieved by just studying God. So that's a great quote. I just think that's fascinating. Loving is a way of knowing. And you can probably say this about your friends and about your family, about your children, all of that. Next up is from St. Augustine, who says, love is my gravity. Man, that's a great one, right? And uh, it, it's profound because he had a, a worldview that was kind of influenced, obviously, by Plato. And Plato and some of the Greek philosophers divided up the earth into the four elements. You may know this, like earth, wind, water, fire, you know? And that those four elements, um, they get separated out. And so there's earth at the bottom, and then there's water, and, and then there's fire, and then there's wind. I mean, that's the layering if you were to put it all in one place. But the thing is, love is the thing that's his gravity. And gravity is what orders those four elements. And so for Augustine, all he was trying to say is, love is the thing that orders my life. Same thing with God. Love is the thing that orders God. And God is also not content to take away anyone's autonomy. So those are just a few quotes to think of, but here's the best and I think the one I like the, the most. It comes from Thomas Merton, and in what I think is his best book of all of his books, it's called No Man is an Island. And in the opening chapter, I think the price of the book is right there. Buy the book at bare minimum just for the opening chapter, and it's called Love Can Only Be Kept by Being Given Away. It's a paradox. But in there he says something to the effect of love seeks the good of the other. And if it doesn't, it is a lie. And it is, in reality, hate. It's like, whoa. Let me say it again. Love seeks the good of the other. If it doesn't, then it is a lie. And in reality, it is hate. Because only hate leads us to not want what's best or good or healthiest for the other person. So, Thomas Merton just blew me away. And as I understand that passage, it also leads me to think that God, the divine, the thing of that which nothing greater can be conceived, the ground of all being, ultimate reality, loves us in such a way that it's always seeking our benefit and our good. And even though it may not feel like it, often our lives are in disarray because someone else doesn't know how to love us well. 
Now, those are just some of the quotes. And, and bracket all of that underneath that same sentence that we started with. Yes, fear might be a quick motivator, but love is a longer lasting one. Fear is most often uh, the thing that's the largest obstacle to, f- to real love. And love in that sense is really profound because as New Testament scriptures also say, in perfect love there is no fear. These two things are opposites of each other. And uh, I don't know. I think I would rather bank on love than on fear. And uh, that leads me to the next thing. So we did the quotes. Just a few quotes about love and the love of God that really stand out to me. But here's the next part. Part two. These are five words that I most often use to describe the love of God. Now, In different circles, in different denominations, in different even faith traditions, there might be different descriptors to describe the love of God. And that's totally fine. You may even come up with your own different set of five. And that's fine. That's totally good. Now, they are primal, final, intimate, infinite, deliberate. And I'm going to speak to every one of those. The love of God is primal. And I mean that in the sense that not it's not that it's like animalistic, but that the love of God is the prime. It's the first thing said to you and to I. That the first word out of God's mouth when God looks at us is love. The love of God is primal. It is there at the start and at the front, at the head, at the beginning of everything. And then on the other end, the love of God is final. That the last word, at the end, at the tail, at the culmination of all things, the last moments of our lives, God looks at us and says, love. And so in that sense, it's kind of like bookends. The love of God is both primal and it is final. The divine, the thing of that which nothing greater can be conceived, the ground of all being, ultimate reality, God, looks at us and from start to finish, from source to completion, from alpha to omega, God says, love. And that love is always looking for our good to happen because that's just how, that's just how it is. Next, intimate. The love of God is close. The love of God is near. The love of God is deep. It is intimate. It's fascinating to me that if you were to go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, you will come across with two different understandings of God because Genesis chapter 1 will tell you that God is big, but Genesis chapter 2 will tell you that God is close. And many people have a Genesis 1 view of God, but they don't know how to balance that or to hold it together with a Genesis 2 God that says God is big, but God is close. The love of God is intimate. So from 
primal to final, God's love is intimate, but it's also infinite. It cannot be exhausted. It is an overflowing fount that will never run dry. It is a rainstorm that will not relent. It is a storm swell that will not subdue or disappear. The love of God is an ocean in which we are a chipped cup at the bottom of it. (laughs) Uh, You might remember that one from before in an earlier episode. The love of God is infinite. And then here's the last one. And this might be the best of all the five words. The love of God is primal, final, intimate, infinite, and deliberate. The love of God is purposeful. It's not a mistake for you. It's not as though God was throwing a dart at a board and some people happened to land on being loved by God and others didn't. God looks at you and God looks at I and the totality of all of our glories and failures, all of our strength and all of our shit, all of that, God looks at us and deliberately says, love. And so those are five words that I'd like to use to describe the love of God. Primal, final, intimate, infinite, and deliberate. And uh, I think it's got to be said that at the base of all reality, when, when reality is as it should be, Love is the structure, it is the blueprint, it is the reason, and it is the logic behind everything. And so, yes, fear may be a quick motivator, but love is a longer-lasting one. And I grieve with those of you that might be listening, and you have not heard that the love of God is primal, final, intimate, infinite, and deliberate for you. Because chances are you probably heard about faith or the love of God from somebody that would have fired a guy like me (laughs) for saying these things. Oh, good golly, man. Uh, But you know what? All of this comes back around, and this is the final part. Uh, in the Christian tradition, we like to say that we don't, in a strict sense, we don't do just strict theology. And, and when I say strict theology, we don't just do God talk all the time. Because in Christian faith, our main emphasis is actually on Jesus, the God-man. Like, this guy just completely changed the game and keeps us guessing and still challenges not just religious circles, but political and religious and economic spheres today. Like Jesus just blew the the whole world wide open and said, keep blooming to all of human civilization and to the rest of the universe. Now, if Jesus really was the God man, then that means when we study Jesus, we're not just studying God doing theology. We're not just also studying anthropology. We're actually doing theoanthropology, the God-man. We're studying the God-man. So, what does that mean? Well, 
In the context of this episode, that means that what we say about God, we can roundabout say about the best of us. Or or the things that we can say about God in some capacity, we can even say about ourselves in our best days. That I'm going to go through the quotes. I'm going to go through the words. What would it look like for you and for I to emulate, to copy, to imitate, to take cues from the love of God and let that be our teacher, our guide about how we love? So for instance, what if we were to love people in all the tangles of who they are? of who they used to be, who they are now, and who they might be tomorrow. That doesn't mean that we let people continue in their dysfunction. It doesn't mean that we let people drag us down when they're unwilling to get healthier. But what does it look like to look at someone in all the tangles of who they are and and take a posture of, of love that says, I want what's best for you. What does it look like for us to say to someone else, I love you as you are, not as you should be? Because I'm not going to be as I should be, and and none of us are going to be as we should be. So let's just love each other now. Or or let's say we take um, that sentence from Mr. Rogers, and we say to someone else, hey, chill out. You don't have to do anything sensational in order to be loved. Imagine saying that to your kid who's constantly trying to prove themselves to everyone else in the world and then you say to them, you don't have to do anything sensational in order to be loved by me. And then what would it look like for us to say, if I want to get to know someone, I got to learn to start loving them. And, and what would it look like to, for us today to say, may love be my gravity. And yes, that's a, we can understand that as a poetic way of what would it look like for me to allow love to order my whole life? Ready for the five words? Primal, final, intimate, infinite, and deliberate. What would it look like for you and I to look upon every person that we meet, even our annoying neighbors, even the person at work that just seems to rob us raw of every interaction? What if the person at Starbucks that stands too close to you while you are making your order and then tries to take your drink. Oh, <laughs> no, that didn't just happen to me recently, of course. What would it look like for us to look at each other and from start to finish, from source to completion, from beginning to end, from the primal moments to the final moments of our interactions with each other, we say love. What would it look like for us to let our love be intimate? And I don't mean necessarily romantic. I mean for it to be sincere. 
for it to be close and to not always hold um, massive distances between one another. Now, maybe you have to do that for a time because some people are toxic. I understand that. And that's healthy. And that goes back to that line of uh, love seeks the good of the other and never at the expense of you, if, if possible. But what would it look like also for our love to be infinite, even though we might have to love some people from a distance? And then what does it look like for us to deliberately love one another? Deliberately, like to make a purposeful decision because love is not um, an easy feeling. It is a purposeful decision. It is a commitment, dare I say, even with the theological terminology it is covenantal between us and our neighbors. The love of God is something profound because it flows down to us, flows deep within us, and then goes out from us. And so the love of God is really, I don't know, man. It's just the hope of everything. And uh, however you come to understand the mystery that's behind all of reality, um, I would like to challenge you that, that that entity behind everything really is love. And that's something that not even churches have fully comprehended, I think. And I'm not saying I have either, but maybe I'm starting to apprehend it, that God is love. And the fortunate thing, the really profound thing, uh, is that so many people, I mean, I did it, so so many people go off to, to seminary, they go off to pastor school, or they spend tons and tons of money on books, they spend tons and tons of money going to conferences or discussion groups, and, and they spend countless hours trying to read up on God, but there's this beautiful passage in 1 John 4 that says, everyone who loves knows God. And so even if you're just starting to learn how to love your neighbor, even if you're just starting to learn to love the annoying person at Starbucks behind you in line, guess what? You are starting to come to know God as God really is. So, at the end of all of this, let me bring it back to that first sentence that kind of got me interested in this topic to begin with. The sentence that got me fired. <laughs> yes, fear may be a quick motivator to make us respond to God. Fear might be a quick way of getting us to do better politics. Fear might be a quick way of making us get stuff done throughout the day. But guess what? Love will always be a longer lasting one. Love will grant us the energy and the imagination to encounter God, to meet up with our neighbor that annoys us. Love is the longer lasting 
a motivator for us to do better politics, for us to do better housing, to do away with homelessness and do better economics and to do better business, to make better lattes, do better art, everything. This is not just about faith. This is fear might be a quick motivator in life, in every facet of life, in every sphere, but love will always be a longer lasting one. So, be free. You don't have to impress anyone. Live in love because you are, as you are right now, you are lovely, lovable, and capable of loving now with the same primal, final, intimate, infinite, and deliberate love that God shows towards you. May love be your gravity. And may love be the thing that guides your every single step. May grace and peace be with you.